Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Gender, a podcast channel on New Books Network. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Polly Bugro-McLean about her new book, Remembering Lucille, A Virginia Family's Rise from Slavery and a Legacy Forged a Mile High. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I wonder, I wonder if you could begin by telling us a bit about yourself. Well, I arrived in the United States um, uh, when I was a teen and uh, ended up, of all places, um, going to the High School for Performing Arts in New York City. So I majored there uh, in drama and dance, and that's where I was headed off until I started studying other things and started wondering about life and why we were where we were. And uh, that took me in a whole different pathway and uh, finished my three degrees. And my last one is the University of Texas in Austin. Um, I have worked and conducted workshops for UNESCO, USAID in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, I have worked with uh, governments in, uh, for example, Iswatini, which used to be called Swaziland. And I have done um, lots of work with uh, rural teachers in upgrading their skills using radio in the classroom and, um, you know, uh, received some awards for some things I've done and set up a department of media studies at the University of Namibia under a Fulbright grant. That should be enough. That is definitely. (laughs) Um, That is wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. Um, What inspired you to write this book? Well, first to begin with, um, the chair of women and gender studies at the university often asked me to come over cross boundaries and uh, teach a course on African-American women's history, which is something I knew about and something that I had studied and uh, was quite prolific at and enjoyed doing. And I was asked to come teach a course. So the first time I taught it, uh, it was supposed to be about the national context of of African-American women. And the second time I said, you know what, I'm going to localize this. I want to teach about Boulder Black women, Boulder County, what happened to them. And when I started on this pathway, I I received lots of jokes from people, things like, the four of you, you mean you want to write, uh, teach a course on four people? And I started getting a little more annoyed because I knew somehow or another, if we had mines uh, and people were miners, blacks were here uh, somewhere, and I had to find them. So even telling me, students on the first day, I remember telling me, well, you know, we know there are black women in Denver, so why don't we just go to Denver and do this assignment? And I dug my heels in and said, absolutely no, we're doing Boulder County. And then at that point, I had to then 
go out because I had this instinct that yes, black women were here and they were here much earlier than how, what we're thinking. So at that point I had to go out and start to look for black women because I did not want to back down on this assignment. And it turns out that I started to find black women who came here in you know, the late 1880s, for example, whose children were born here and who some have children and grandchildren and great-grands that are still alive. Uh, many of them are buried in the historical cemetery uh, in, in Boulder. Uh, so I dug my heels in, and the students had to go out and interview women, families who were here for a long time. And they did a fantastic job. And uh, that turned out to be a very small book on the Legacy of Missing Pieces, The Voices of Black Women of Boulder County, which is out of print now. So they got a publication out of a class and it stirred a lot of interest uh, in me in that sense. And while I was doing that, I went to the Heritage Center, which is the repository of everything uh, archival for the alums that exist. And I went there and I was told, well, you know, yeah, we don't have many, but we do have the first. And uh, her picture's on the wall, and she's the first Black woman to graduate from the University of Colorado. And I said, oh, okay, interesting. And I sort of left it at that. After the class over, I went back and I said, let's talk about this first. Because, you know, we tend to always look for the first. And there are things that others did that superseded the first. Our obsession with the first is very amazing to me in some sense. So uh, she said, well, you know, we do have this little article that somebody gave us. And it had to do with uh, the first black woman who was buried in an unmarked grave uh, without a tombstone. And I went, did we uh, ever check on this? She says, absolutely no. And, and that's because they already had the first. And I said, all right. So I went to the archives and the archives folks says, no, we didn't look into this. So I said, well, now it's time for me to look into it. And as I looked into it, it was a very simple um, uh, task. I pulled transcripts and the transcript said to me that the person we have had for maybe 40 years as the first actually graduated six years later. Then Lucille graduated. Lucille graduated in 1918, and this other woman graduated in 1924. Well, of course, when I did that, I then became ostracized in some way by some people because I'm now gone through and I'm upsetting the model that had been created all these years. Um, and that became my job in terms of finding out more about this woman and her family who came here as the you know, emancipated slaves uh, in the 1800s. And those tensions between history and memory are something that you, you really keep exploring in the book. And in order to do that, you really ended up undertaking a monumental task. You tracked across 10 states in search of Lucille's story and to figure out how you can truly remember Lucille because that wasn't the first time you were offered the wrong story. When they said, this is the first woman. And then you began to find out the first woman was someone else. After that, people began to tell you, here's a picture of Lucille. And it wasn't. 
Can you talk about the work of actually trying to figure out how to correctly restore and remember Lucille? Well, I believe that it was necessary to gather all the kinds of information and to touch every base that I can find in order to build this story because she died. There was little archives left behind, and that's the issue with people who do not make the front page of the newspaper. We tend to focus on those who are celebrities, those who are famous historians, and we, we tend to ignore those who are the history makers and who live a very simple life. So I decided that I was not going to just uh, stay within one context. I was going to go and look for different archives, uh, traveled where she traveled, walked in the streets where she walked, sat in the restaurant she may have sat in. And that took me to 20, I, 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 I finally got In terms of the archival work, I I spent time looking at 21 different archives, which made me start thinking outside the box. Um, And in some of those archives were fantastic information that I was able to find that, and others were problematic. Um, For example, the Denver Fire Department archives I needed because her father was killed as a result of the new... um, machinery that we got in terms of replacing horses with with, uh, fire trucks and ringing bells. And he was driving his his, uh, Clydesdale horses home and they got spooked. He was thrown off of the, uh, the, uh, uh, onto the ground outside, out of the uh, carriage and was killed. And every time I try to go and get that information, they always had something else to, to tell me that they couldn't get find it. So that was always a problem. But others were absolutely open and gave me as much information that one could imagine. Um, and at times I would be changing history in those places. Case in point, Lucille went to the University of Northern Colorado. So I went to look at their records and records management up in Greeley. Um, and they had a big picture of who was the first to graduate out of there. And I looked at it and I said, we got a problem. Lucille graduated in 1905 from here and your person only graduated in 1911. So let's see what we have. And they pulled uh, the graduating class in 1905 and it was very small pictures. And they said to me, well, there is no black people in here. Well, they were looking for cult the color issue became problematic. And I said, you know what? Get a magnifying glass. Let's look and see. And there was this brown-skinned girl in there that happened to be Lucille. And I said, there she is. And they went, oh, my goodness, we would never have done that. So that becomes, you know, the kind of stuff that I was able to not only gather but also correct. And as a and and. But I also went out in the streets, and that, I think, proved to be one of the most inspiring uh, opportunity, and not only uh, for me, but inspiring for others I run into as they heard her story as I was telling them in order to get them to respond to me and to give me the information that I need. Uh, So that's kind of how I pulled these two things together, the hard archives that were, you know, 
deposited somewhere and those who were not deposited, um, but who I was able to also um, connect with in very unusual ways. And to get at her story, one of the things you had to do was go back deep into her heritage. And that took you to Oatlands. Can you tell us about why you had to go there and how that ties into her story? Well, I found out that both that her father was a slave at Oatlands Plantation in Virginia, and her mother was a slave at the Evergreen Plantation also in Virginia. And we're talking about Northern Virginia. And I then decided that I needed to go there. And I went, it took me, I went three times, three years in a row, going over three years, going to Oatlands and back uh, to check out on at Evergreen. And when I got there, it was very upsetting for me because I, I saw myself driving on a road where, you know, people who were slaves walked, carried things, you know, were beaten probably. And, and that touched me in ways that it was very difficult uh, to enter the doors of this plantation. And every time I went there, it was upsetting in one way or another, um, based upon how I would go to the, li- to, the, uh, s- to the store on the plantation, and people were sort of taken back that I entered. So they would always go talk to the whites who came in to buy things, and me was kind of left on the side. So it was kind of, that, that became interesting looking at the dynamics that was being developed in these places that had now come, you know, uh, entrepreneurial businesses where people get married on these plantations um, and have parties, et cetera. So that, that threw me off a lot, but they were very kind there anyway. The people that were there, especially the, the, the archivists, uh, to open up and give me her, uh, the diaries uh, of, of one of the slave owners. So I was able to put together pieces that I would not have been able to put together if I didn't go there. Because at that time when I went, they didn't have any of this online. Uh, so I was the first to have access to something that was so precious and so informative about how slaves were treated from the perspective of the, of the owner. Uh, not from their perspective, but I was able to get the slaves' perspectives based upon what she says in the diary when she says, you know, they went to uh, a party or they left and didn't tell me. So they were taking on some roles and responsibilities and taking on some action that we would not have known uh, in that place. And it turns out that, you know, you're talking about about five people running uh, this plantation, Evergreen, and you're talking about a a hundred plus slaves. I mean, I always ask who really had the power, who was doing what, and how did they negotiate uh, with it, with that pla- in, in that plantation? Uh, so I, I, you know, I learned as much as possible in order to be able to understand why Lucille's father would come here, and shortly after he arrives, he would form his own business. He brought the skills that he learned during slavery and after slavery in, in, you know, when we were still, you know, suffering. Uh, but he had learned certain things and were able to execute them in the, in the American West. Um, and uh, immediately uh, he ran for office even 
in Denver, Colorado in the, in the late 1800s and one street commissioner. Uh, so it, it does say certain things about how people were able uh, to survive, even though people were being killed um, right and left in terms of beaten, uh, you know, maimed, et cetera, during slavery, which was not, uh, uh, was the most unpleasant moment in anyone's life. And another really important person you learned more about on these research trips was Sarah. Can you tell us about Sarah and who Sarah was to Lucille's life? Sarah was Lucille's mother. And um, when Sarah came here, this is what triggered me to actually go back to Sarah's plantation, uh, which was Evergreen. Uh, when Sarah came here, Lucille would be the first born in Colorado. She was born near the Platte River and uh, in a shed. And I found it very interesting that her middle name would be Berkeley. So her name was, you know, uh, Lucille was Lucille Berkeley Buchanan. Okay. And I'm like, what, what, why Berkeley? What does Berkeley mean? And who is Berkeley? And as I started to track this down, I recognized that Berkeley uh, was the slave owner. And I'm like, why give this kind of person a middle name? Well, as I did and dug deeper, I recognized that Berkeley was Sarah's, Lucille's mother's father. And therefore, she was unable to claim her white heritage when she was in Virginia. But the first thing she does when she comes here, she claims it through Lucille and gives Lucille the Berkeley's middle name. Now, that also took me on an interesting trip because I could recall that I went to a Balch Library in Leesburg. And one day, I'm librarian said to me, you see that person there, um, that woman? She's connected to the Berkeleys in some way or another. Why don't you go talk to her? So I walked up to this woman and I said, uh, hi, my name is so-and-so. I'm from the University of Colorado. And um, I'm doing this uh, project, this book eventually on, uh, you know, this family. Uh, and uh, the, um, the mother of this person that I'm doing the book on happened to have been uh, born here. And I was told that her father was uh, Edmund Berkeley. And she goes, no, 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 there's no such thing. They, they never would have done that. And there's a white male standing close by. And he says, come, come now. You know they used to go with those black women all the time. And at that point, she, she melts down. And she, she totally does a, a U-turn and says, well, well, maybe you're right uh, to this guy. And then she invited me to the house that she was living in to see if the 5,000 pictures she had, one of those would be with Lucille's mother. And she takes me to her house. All of this is going on on the same day. I get to this house and I swore I was back in the antebellum. The entire house gave me that feeling that I was back at this period of time when slavery was going on from the decor, the, the kind of mat that was on the floor, everything. And she brought out lots of pictures. And of course, 
Uh, I was not able to look through all of them and there were no pictures of anyone black. Um, but she kept up with me and kept sending me things that she would find um, that sort of made me quite uh, happy to, to find that I build this relationship with somebody who was, you know, negating the fact that, uh, you know, black women were abused, uh, sexually abused uh, during slavery. Uh, so, um, so that's kind of how I kept playing and working within this structure. Um, I will get information. Somebody will share it with me. I will then find somebody else. And sometimes people went, no, no, no. Um, when I shared the fact that Lucille's mother, uh, was again a Berkeley, um, I had Berkeley's tell me point blank to my face. While I might agree with it, my sister would never buy this. Um, so just to tell you, no way. Uh, so it became this give and take sometimes, and it came, became this redefining what we had already solidified as history. History changes. It's not static. And I kept telling people this, and I kept getting information more and more. Um, about such. And that really comes through throughout the entire book. There's a, a through line that you were working as a detective and hmm. what you were going to find out was disruptive to what people wanted to believe about their past or what they had believed about their past. And um, as a result, you had far, far more research than you were able to, to share in the book. Yes. Um, and often that's some of the most fascinating parts. Um, would you like to, to tell us some of the most important or your favorite things that, that you didn't get to include in the book about your detective work and about yeah. this sort of unraveling people's cherished narratives to try to do what historians do, which is keep repairing and changing the historical record? Absolutely. It, it, it's consistently changing um, and having to be updated. And there were things that happened, um, you know, which, which I, you know, research in, in my head becomes the lifeblood of the society in which we live. And I, you know, and some of the personal experiences didn't make it in the book because I was told I had to cut out about 40,000 words. And one of it happened uh, going to, my first field experience before going down south was to go to Los Angeles. And I went to Los Angeles. Uh, I got there about 6 o'clock, 6.30 in the morning. And I went because one of my research assistants, uh, Kiana, uh, had a love of L.A., grew up in L.A., father grew up in L.A., and therefore knew the community. So we get to where I had found a list of where Lucille's sisters, two had moved to L.A. And, uh, and stayed there and would eventually die there and never came back to Colorado. And I decided, okay, let's track down and see who knows something about them. What can I find out? Because, again, there are no archives. So I ended up, um, again, going to... Uh, various parts of, of, of L.A. And in 
Kiana um, and I got a car and we ended up traveling to one of the addresses we had. And one of those addresses um, uh, took us to a place at a corner house. And there was only one door to get into the house on the, on the street. And we stood there and we, she decided to go up the stairs. Now, this is, again, a grad student working with me on this project. So she decided to run up the stairs and to look through a picture win- a window that had no curtains or anything. And, uh, and as she got up there, she turned around immediately, looked at me very puzzled, and ran down the stairs. And, uh, and this was in what we call the West Adams District. And she says, there's a raven on a small table in a huge cage that's in that house. I said, a raven in a cage? I said, that's illegal. She says, no, there's one there, and I know what a raven looks like. Um, so at that point, I said, okay, um, let's think this through. And before I know it, she opens the mailbox to the house. She pulls out the mail, and I go, that's illegal. She says, no, uh, as long as I don't open it. I said, it's illegal, put it back in. So she puts it back in. But what we didn't know, in the, you know, and this happened to me in many of the communities that I worked in because I said, I walked the streets where Lucille walked. I followed her pathway. So what happens in the end of this is that we didn't know that the guy across the street was watching us, a black guy. So he comes out of his house and he says, what are you doing here? And this is about <laughs> 7 o'clock in the 7, 7.30 in the morning. What are you doing here? And I'm like freaking out. Um, I immediately pull my faculty ID and I said, I am, I hold it always up to my face so they'll see the same picture. I said, I'm a faculty member at the University of Colorado and we're doing this. And I'm trying to find out the people who lived here, et cetera, et cetera. So he calmed himself down and he said, well, you know what? The guy around the corner, uh, you should go to him because he's here for a long, long time. And what I really wanted was to get a sense of her sister's what people remembered of them, because I know some or another, they were going to be written into this book. So we get around the corner and sitting on the porch is a black male. And he had, and we're talking about again, 7.30 in the morning. He had a six pack sitting on the, on the porch with him of which he was drinking his first. So we walked up to him and again, the speech, I am so-and-so, this is, you know, my research assistant, Kiana. And he said, uh-huh, and, and he's listening and listening, and we're trying to convince him that we're legit. Uh, he said, uh, want, want a beer? And we said, no, thank you. But he said, sit down. And he sat down, and he started to talk to us about the two women that he remembered who lived there. And that was just a most marvelous experience, not only the experience of the, of the person watching us, because that's so typical in communities that have some longevity, but also the fact that this guy is there and he's willing to talk to us and tell us a, about them. Uh, so, you know, and again, um, he, you know, we thanked him. 
But we also had other addresses and we went driving to other places that they had some connection. And one of it invited us in for tea. And this is another African-American woman. And apparently the house she lives in, she bought it from the sisters. And again, that was another um, uh, experience that you wouldn't just get sitting in the library. Um, so we got an introduction to her sisters in very unusual ways. And it's experiences you wouldn't have from the online research. As things get digitized and they put, get put online, nothing really is a substitute, as you say, for walking in the pathways to going back to where things are and seeing where the living memories are in, yeah. in all sorts of places. Um, and that really comes through in the book again and again. Where are the memories? How do we remember? Who has the memories? Um, and, and you go ahead. You know, there, there, was a, there was one also that happened that was just based upon what you're saying right now. Um, I went to Kansas City, Missouri. And um, I went by myself. I went to the library, did the archival stuff, figured out everything, got everything that uh, existed that she had something to do with. And then uh, Saturday morning, I decided that I wanted to go into the neighborhood where she lived, to the house that was that she lived in, and maybe it's still standing. And uh, so. I then recognized, okay, uh, I'll get a, I'll get a guy, I'll get a car. I'll have someone drive me there. And, uh, but I also found out that I had forgotten my camera. So I stopped at a Walgreens, got one of their Instamatic cameras and took off and got a driver who was from Albania. <laughs> okay. So here I am in Kansas city with a driver, Ajay is his name from Albania. And, uh, we had the windows were up. And I'm sitting in the back seat and he's trying to find. And again, we're talking about about again, 7 o'clock, 7.30, where the dew is still out and it's cool. And, uh, you know, I, the windows were down and I was, and that was not so I could appear as an intruder. You know, I'm in the back seat and I was snapping some pictures. And it was a very depressed community that, that I was entering. In. Um, and all of a sudden, a red pickup truck sped by us and turned around, blocking us from traveling near accident. Okay. And the guy jumps out of it, African-American male again, big guy. And he comes over and he said, where you're going and why you're in this neighborhood. And of course, I had to answer the question. And, and then before... I answered, he looked at me in the back and said, and why are you taking pictures? I didn't think I was that obvious taking pictures. Yeah. Um, and eventually I said to him, I'm here. This is what I'm doing. I'm trying to find this, history, this, this uh, address. And you know what the guy said? You know what? Follow me. Here he is. And he takes us to the house that is still standing where Lucille lived for several years. And not only does he get out, he also began telling me the history, something that is not recorded in any archives of the neighborhood and of that house that he knew. And it was going up for landmark status. Hopefully they'll get it. 
um, because of who lived there. Um, and uh, it was an amazing story. Here I have a local person telling me the history of a neighborhood that I had just entered. While he's doing this, another car with a black male, younger, drives by and stops. You know, he then says, what are you all doing here? I then jumps up, run over to him to tell him. And he says, oh, good job. Keep it up. And he started telling me some history also. So the history that we named in in our heads that never get into an archive, that nobody records, that dies with us, uh, was being told to me. And in, in an amazing way that made me feel that I understood more than ever. And the role of oral history is, is so important. And, and in, as you say, in gaining the trust of these people, because they first start by who are you and why are you here? And exactly. they felt your passion for the project. They felt your respect and your commitment. And that's really what unlocked the stories in them, because I get the feeling if you had not passed their litmus test, they would have driven on and you never would have known. Exactly. exactly. All that, yeah, all that they had. Um, and one of the things I think is helpful to tell listeners is that Lucille lived to be 105. Is that correct? Absolutely. And so part of why her story is in so many places is because of the longevity of her life and of the number of people in her family and how you can't separate who Lucille became from her four mothers and forefathers. Right. And so that added to the complexity and to the 40,000 words you had to cut out. That's painful. Yeah. Uh, and it's, you know, and the thing about, about it is that, you know, she did things quietly, even though sometimes she did things very openly. Because when she saw injustice, she decided to do something about it. Case in point, she, she would not get hired at the university, uh, in, in Colorado. She went through two years at Greeley, got her, her license for teaching, and she had to pay back to the, to, the, to, the, to the state the money they invested in her. Because, and that was, you, you pay back the money by teaching for us. Well, she couldn't get a job. Um, and a lot of that had to do with the fact that the white parents didn't want a black uh, teacher teaching their children. So after getting turned down, she even tried to get a job in a town called Maitland that doesn't exist anymore, which was a mining town. And that was 165 miles away from Denver. She was willing to travel to teach. And that fell apart. I mean, imagine the Maitland newspaper carried a story on this very bright black woman who was trying to get a job in Maitland. I mean, I would have never thought that. So here she is. She immediately comes back here and goes to what she traditionally would do. She goes to her minister, Reverend Ford at Zion Baptist Church. And he says, I'll help you. So he picks up the phone, calls Little Rock Baptist College and say, I've got somebody here who needs a job, blah, blah, blah. And the next thing you know, Lucille is taking off for Little Rock, Arkansas, where she begins teaching in the Jim Crow South, which she will teach in most of her life. Okay. Even though she went to Chicago to teach, she was still in a segregated system uh, teaching. So Lucille is, is there. And what happened when she, uh, 
leaves Little Rock, she goes to Hot Springs. In Hot Springs, uh, the, there was a fire, a terrible fire that took down both the white school and the black school. Well, they built the white school first and the black kids had to go to the basement of churches and various places in order to get an education. Well, Lucille decided enough is enough. Uh, some, she had to do something. So what she did is uh, before the semester ended, she resigned and, and came right back to Denver, Colorado. She resigns and... Uh, what she had left to do in giving the exams, the last exam, she asked a colleague, a male black colleague in the, in the, in the school system uh, to do it for her. Uh, that became a major stir. People were just like writing uh, letters. I have a few letters of people of, of saying, you know, that Lucille, uh, you have to come back. And even the white, white uh, head of the uh, school system says, if we give you more money, that might make you happy and make you come back. Well, there was a reason she did this because she wanted to bring attention to the fact that children were being deprived of the kind of system and education by, by pushing them, by not building a new school for them, and then by pushing them in the basements to, to go to school. Uh, she would eventually go back and finish her, uh, her contract uh, you know, in hot springs, but she took action whenever she thought it was necessary. And at times, you know, I read uh, cards that was sent to her um, in, in, you know, after she retired in the late 40s and early 50s, it says, you are so sorely missed. You know, we would go to you whenever we couldn't understand how to control a class, how to get the students focused. And are we missing you because we don't have that kind of help anymore? She made such an impression on the people who met her. That just comes through again and again throughout the stories you're sharing now and the ones that are in the book as well. Um, and you say in the book that some people make headlines while other people made history. Mm -hmm. Lucille made history. But Lucille also made newspaper stories. And one of the newspaper stories, she was 104, and a reporter was speaking to her about voting. And voting was something that she was very passionate about. Can you talk about that newspaper story? Because that was probably one of the last uh, records, public records of Lucille. Yeah, she, what had happened to Lucille is that um, she, when she came back here, she moved into the house that her father built an emancipated slave built in Denver. And it's the only house that is still standing that an emancipated slave built. Many places that emancipated slaves lived in was already built, but in Denver, it's all, you know, this one house on Raleigh Street. And so she moved in there with her brother and he would eventually die and she would stay there. Um, and will, and when she was about a hundred and Three, she kept getting very upset because there was a lot of um, noise coming from somewhere and she was blind and couldn't see, but her faculties were all in place. So all of this um, noise started bothering her and she would then call uh, first responders. Well, the first responders got a little annoyed of this elderly black woman by herself, uh, according to them. And therefore, the state stepped in. 
and will take her out of there uh, in, in, in ways that would be very, it's very upsetting when you read in the book and yes. put her into a nursing home. Now, what, you know, when they, they sort of, uh, when they did this, they didn't realize that Lucille had arrangements for her life and that she was, as I say, the, a reversal of driving Miss Daisy. Uh, Lucille had a white driver. Um, and this person, uh, you know, cut the grass in the house, uh, you know, outside, uh, painted the porch, uh, took her shopping, took her to vote <laughs> until finally somebody would come and do absentee ball- uh, I mean, ballots at the house with her. Um, I mean, she had arrangements for her life and decided exactly who would get uh, the house. She had a will drawn up saying the Baptist College would get her house on Raleigh Street. And, but that didn't satisfy them and they didn't know. And so she ended up in a nursing home where she will live until she dies at 105. So this is about 103. She's taken out. Well, that all, she also were able, was able to maneuver things in order to get back home. She did two things. The people, the first people who bought the house, um, especially the, the, uh, the, the wife, uh, Doris, was very compassionate and very much appreciated Lucille. So she arranged to bring Lucille out of this nursing home uh, back to the house whenever they had the opportunity to do this. So, and, you know, so that happened along the way. But she's also playing them because she wanted to go back home. So what does Lucille do? She asked to go to Zion Baptist Church for service. And they agreed to bring her back to church. Uh, She got all dressed up. And when service ended, she decided to do a sit-in in in the church in order for her to get back to where she really wanted to do. So she protested at 103, she might get back to that house that her father built. It's where she wanted to die. And uh, of course, that didn't work out because they were after the church, everybody left, the minister left, the deacons are the only ones there, the bus is outside, the woman who runs the nursing home uh, had to come and even offer to take her in her own car back to the nursing home. Lucille would have none of it. She cried and cried and would not move. So they finally picked her up, the deacons, and put her in the bus and took her back there. So Lucille, even at 105, but voting was something along the way that she believed was the most important part of, of anybody's um, life in order to make difference and to make change. And she voted when Colorado had only state, uh, created state elections where people can vote. Um, and she also voted, you know, with the, you know, after the 1920s with the first time suffragettes and were able to get the right to vote. So voting meant meant something to her. And in this situation, which she wrote in this little diary that I I have a copy of, she says, you know, um, uh, that we've already had a Catholic. We've had a lot of Protestants, okay, Uh, presidents. We've had a Catholic Kennedy. Um, We need now, and she was going for Goldwater. She says, now we need a Jew. 
because we need to have all representations of everybody, uh, you know, and so that's what happened to her at that election that she would be the last time to vote. And you, you quote from her 1864 diary in the book, and she made a, a really accurate prediction in 1864. She, she wrote, will the democratic party become the party of minorities and the Republican party become the lily white party? Yeah, absolutely. And what do we have now today? She could be writing about today's headlines. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that and was in 1864 when she was yeah. 80 years old. And she made that prediction. Right. Just and the other thing, too. Yeah. Go ahead. And the other thing also that she predicted is that we already had a black president. So she talked about the fact that, uh, that you know, the, the one drop rule that says if you have a drop of black in you, you're indeed black. So she said, okay, one, one drop f- fell into this, this particular category. So when Obama would come on board, in fact, there was a, a small article in the New York Times talking about um, the one drop rule and that is, is, is Obama the real legitimate first black president we've ever had, which I thought was so funny when I read this and what Lucille indeed had predicted and also, you know, predicted what's going on today so many years ago. And as you, as you read this book, it's, it's so fascinating, uh, everything about Lucille, uh, everything about her personality, her wisdom, her, her intellect. Uh, it's flabbergasting that she hasn't been in a book before. Um, because even as you went so many places to uncover her, what is clear is that the memories of her had never been erased or hidden. They, w- they were very prominent for all the people who held them. Um, and even so, uh, after she was gone, uh, and there's one really powerful story you share in the book, uh, about a phone call you got from the Las Vegas police department as you were nearing the end of writing this book and your research. Can you tell us about when the Las Vegas police department called you and Mm -hmm. how that, uh, affected some of the research in your book? Well, what I discovered was that Lucille um, had certain relatives left here, even though there were tension between them, because she's very much a stickler for perfection. And so her her great niece was alive, and the two ch- uh, ch- her two children were alive. And um, and so Lucille was able to um, have some little connection there, one way or another. And when I found them in Las Vegas, I went to Las Vegas to see if they would talk to me. They were somewhat shy and didn't want to talk to me face to face. So I left notes in the mailbox. I went up to the door, knocked on the door, left all kinds of beautiful notes. And eventually I get a message and I get a letter saying, what do you need? We, we, we're glad, we're sorry we weren't here, and I knew they were there, um, et cetera. So I started to build a relationship with these great nieces and her niece, you know, they, her children and everybody. And as I'm building this relationship, I would, the way it worked is I will send them a question and they will then respond back to me and mail it to me. 
And I'm like, okay, that's how we're going to do our research. So every time I needed to understand something about Lucille, I would do this and it worked. Um, and then one night um, uh, I was sitting at home and the book had finished. And I'm like, okay, uh, it's ended. I've done it. I get a call and it says, this is Las Vegas Police Department looking for Polly McLean. And I said, who? Who? And they said, Las Vegas Police Department. And I said, well, she's not at home. Um, and I hung up. So then I decided to call again that number because I had the number and it was the Las Vegas Police Department. And I'm like, what the hell do they want with me? What did I do when I was in Las Vegas? I thought anything you do in Las Vegas stays in Las Vegas and doesn't leave Las Vegas. And so here I am all at night, this was late in the evening, and I'm like nervous. So the next morning I called, and what I came to find out, well, I knew that uh, the mother had uh, had passed, but the two sisters, uh, born a year apart, in their 50s, late 50s, were still alive. And in the same house that I went to when I went to Las Vegas more than once to try to track them down. Uh, I then... Uh, get to straight to the public administrator. He got on the phone and told me that when they were state, that these two women had committed suicide, double suicide inside the house, they first killed the dog that was their best friend. And they uh, had these, they killed themselves and that's it. And my number was the only number they had to call. No other numbers existed. And I'm like, oh, no. So at that point, I said, um, I'm coming to Las Vegas. Uh, so I arranged to go to Las Vegas. And by then I had, re I had met, I, I, I was able to track down Lucille's family to the 13th or 14th generation who's still alive in Virginia. So I called them up and I says, look, I know that you're 13th, 14th generation removed. Could one of you go with me to Las Vegas? Because I don't know what's going to go on when I got there. Well, when I got there, the police was so, I mean, the public administrator, which we, she's an elected position. In Denver, it's not an elected position. It's an appointed position which, who acts very differently. Uh, this person called me. I went to visit him and he said, you know, you're doing a book and that's a great story. So what we'd like to do is to allow you to go into the house for four hours with a police escort and see if there's any archival stuff that's there that you might need for your book and, and look around. And I said, fine. And I had never been in such a situation. Only their bodies were removed. The book that they used to find the easiest way to kill themselves, which was, you know, helium, uh, was there open on the page they used in the bedroom. They shared the same bedroom. The, the cheats were still there. The dog basket that he was killed in was still there. I then went into, a, you know, I was searching, but I started to break down going, oh my God, I don't feel this is so uncomfortable. This is a real problem. Um, I don't know what to do. Well, it turns out that I ended up um, talking with the police. Um, the person I took from the 13th generation, they agreed was family, some or another. 
and um, you know, they cremated them, but then they were going to dump their ashes somewhere. And I then paid the money for them to dump the ashes because according to all that I've read, they that they wanted to be buried near their parents. Their parents were buried in the in the military cemetery because the father was a military officer and mother was allowed to, but children are not. So I got I paid someone to go as close as possible to dump to to bury them uh, their ashes near their parents, um, which I you know. But when I got back home, it was just difficult for me to write about death like that. Uh, and I've been around a lot of death, <laughs> this you know. But this one was personal in ways that I never had anticipated. Um, and that's what happened in Las Vegas. Wow. It's a really powerful section of the book and it's in- equally incredibly powerful when, when you talk about it. Um, the other really, for me, really powerful standout thing in the book was that there was a video of Lucille in the cemetery. And to me, it's part of the full circle of where you started with this story of there was this woman in this unmarked grave and you go through this incredible quest. And yet here's this video of her in the cemetery. And I wonder if you could tell us about the video and then you could tell us about finding where Lucille is actually uh, on a headstone. Right. Um, well, <clears throat> the, uh, um, it took, 19 days to bury Lucille after she died, uh, which was quite upsetting to me. And I had to try to figure out why I had to go to Fairmont Cemetery. Uh, They spoke to me and it had to do with the time, the way in which the public administrator, who is again, not public because he's not elected. He or she is not elected in Denver, even though they're called public administrators. Um, They're appointed by colleagues of the law, you know, by colleagues. Um, and uh, I ended up, um, you know, trying very hard to uh, understand what went down and why. So Lucille had done something most remarkable. Again, everything she did was very strategic. Uh, she decided, I think it's 953, uh, that what she would do is go to um, the cemetery and buy a plot, a, 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 a Cremens plot, which was next to her sister, uh, who had committed suicide. One of her sisters had committed suicide, uh, who was, uh, had gone to the same school that Lucille would graduate from university of Northern Colorado. So her sister committed suicide is buried in what would be called a white section of the cemetery. And when I got there, I kept saying, you know, Where's your, you know, black section, white section? They said, well, you know, we integrate this. Ah, there's no way. You know, I walked over to the black section and started finding everybody's names who are black in there. And I started looking up the census and proving, ah, no, this is a section. Well, Lucille decided on the same day that Thurgood Marshall was arguing Brown versus Board of Education to the Supreme Court to take an action that was amazing. She went to the cemetery on that same day to do her own uh, uh, you know, desegregation by buying the, the plot, which is a Cremens plot next to her sister 
who was buried in the white section, very close to Millionaire's Row in Fairmont Cemetery. Amazing. Um, so she does this. And um, she even went across the street, which I, which still existed when I was doing this, and bought even the, the plot, uh, the, the headstone with her name on it, the day she was born, and blank for the day she will die. And uh, that would be what they did. Uh, and I didn't know this. And it was that video that somebody took, the, the Doris again, the first people who bought the house um, where her father built in on Raleigh Street in Denver, 227 Raleigh. And what happened is they had... Uh, uh, they had arranged uh, to take her and it was always on Memorial Day where she would go and put flowers for the family. And they did, I think, more than once. But this time they took a camera and took Lucille talking and uh, standing and going over and touching things. And uh, it's, it's a beautiful video. And uh, that really also set me again on another uh, you know, quest to find out more. And I then went back and I said, okay, she, she's in, she bought the plot in, uh, in, I think it was 53. She bought the plot. What happened? Why isn't she not buried with her sister? Well, there was a lot of shenanigans going on, lots of problems going on in terms of the people, uh, uh, the person who was in charge of her financial situation and claimed that there was not enough money, but they sold the plot immediately. Somebody else is buried there, and therefore, where do we put Lucille? They had depended upon this niece that existed that went eventually to Las Vegas to live, and that niece didn't want to have anything to do with her because she was mad with Lucille because she thought Lucille was too pompous, um, and therefore, that was it. And, uh, you know, Lucille's, uh, you know, clearly her will... Uh, said what needed to have been done, not followed. And it was um, a local uh, graduate from the University of Colorado who had decided, Walsenberg, uh, who's a, a, the son of uh, Walsenberg, uh, 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 Walson, um, that a, a town is named after. And his son was a history buff. And when he read the article that she was buried in a grave without a name on it, um, decided to, to correct history and to put her name on it. So, but you, it's not in the front, it's at the back and it's small and you, you, you know, and it's a huge headstone. So where they put her in is where her sister had bought uh, land and where they have found this out and there was a space left. So she gets there and where she really wants to be buried with her sister uh, who died by committing suicide? She's not buried there, uh, and it's it was a, s a sad situation. Um, but she's there, and that's what they've done. And I've also asked them to show that there's enough space for them to put her first in front, uh, and they have yet to done it. I guess we have to raise the money in order to do that. Wow, this is a an amazing book and an amazing woman. And I wish we had another hour to talk about her. I think we've just started uh, sharing her, you know, having you share her stories. Um, but in the few minutes we have left, I want to ask you about uh, what project you're working on now. Ah, 
Thank you. Uh, well, it's interesting that you brought that up as, as we are experiencing uh, certain things this time, uh, the death of John Lewis. Uh, I, While I was doing Lucille stuff, I discovered an article written in the 1960s um, about a group of Coloradans, primarily white Coloradans with some blacks in there, and, and I think they may have been uh, Latinx or two, um, and who... They rented a plane uh, to take them to the Selma March. And um, they went to the march, the 25th march, which was the culminating march of everything. And, and that's when Martin Luther King sent out a message asking people to join him in Selma uh, for this historic moment. And uh, they took off and they spent, they spent a day in, in Selma. Um, and their stories are fascinating and what happened to some of them after they came back. Many of them, I'm not talking about, you're talking about uh, regular citizens who was already activists in their own way uh, and who indeed would become even more activists once they went to that Selma March, had a, had a movement. So I'm doing a documentary, had something to do with their life. And, um, uh, and what happened is that, I mean, you're talking about something like uh, Governor Roy Roma uh, was at Selma. Uh, Colorado had the first African-American lieutenant governor who happened to be the first African-American lieutenant governor in the entire country. He went. He has passed on. But his daughter, who was then 15, went and is willing to be interviewed by me for this documentary and what it meant to her. Uh, a lot, some of the people who were white, who were at, in school here uh, in Colorado, decided uh, that after they got their degree, they would go down south and live. And I just got in touch with one who's been living in Jackson, Mississippi, uh, all of his life after graduating out of the philosophy department in CU Boulder. Uh, so it's, it's a fascinating look at what happened to this group of people who took on the challenge of the civil rights movement and what happened to them and how they progressed and uh, how things uh, changed and maybe went back to what it is today. And, you know, we need to consistently look at things and, and update them and change and get involved um, and it touched me because uh, of uh, one of the people we interviewed had gone to the bridge when um, John Lewis uh, was attacked brutally. And one of the people we have interviewed also have scars on his forehead still from that second march that uh, John was at. That sounds like such an important documentary to make. I hope you will come back and tell us about it when, when it's finished. Yeah. Um, Dr. Polly McLean, thank you so much for being on the show today and telling us about your new book, Remembering Lucille, A Virginia Family's Rise from Slavery and a Legacy Forged a Mile High. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and you've been listening to New Books Network. Please join us again. <laughs>